experts of Common Sense Investing have been helping their clients and listeners make sense of the markets for nearly three decades. Using a conservative, diversified, value-oriented approach to investing, they strive to make you a better educated, well-informed investor. And now here's your host, Eric Whiteman. Thank you and welcome to this edition of Common Sense Investing. I'm your host, Eric Whiteman, partner here at the XML Financial Group. Let's spend a couple of minutes on the market before we move on. And I'm going to start with my conclusion. Looking out over the next year, the next 12 months, I'm pretty bullish. And I think there's plenty of reasons to, to think this way. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't or we won't have a normal type of correction, but it'll be just that a normal type of correction that allows us to go higher. Now, I've been traveling the last couple of days visiting clients and uh, my flight got delayed yesterday coming home. So I spent some time really thinking about where we were or where we are from a big picture standpoint. And if you've listened long enough, you know that I'm more of a fundamental investor rather than a market caller. Certainly have to pay attention to the big picture, but I look at a company's fundamentals first, and then I look at it in relationship to the market. Anyway, from a big picture perspective, I think we're slowing down. We aren't fully out of the pandemic, but the market seems like it's already shot through the recovery and expansion phase of the business cycle. And I think we're going to be slowing down from here. Now, that doesn't mean we're crashing. Slowing down means we've peaked. According to Bloomberg, the consensus estimates for GDP, GDP growth is going to go from 6.4% this year to 4% next year. 4% ain't bad. Same thing for earnings. In the first quarter, U.S. stocks delivered earnings growth of about 53% year over year. And the analysts expect going forward, that's going to go down to about 21%. Those are good, heck, even great numbers, but we are slowing down. When this happens, when earnings growth slows, the market has a tendency to change too. Investors start looking at more growthy type names. And I think we've already seen a hint of that happening in markets. It also seems to me that the hot topic of conversation is inflation. And I've talked about this on past shows and during my annual outlook. But to recap, I'm not overly concerned with it now, but I do think it'll be a big problem down the road. So I think we're slowing down, but earnings are still going to be robust. Inflation should work itself out here over the next several months. It'll probably be higher than it was over the last 10 years, but not to the point where it'll cause problems for stocks. Another reason why I'm bullish longer term is because the consumer is in great shape and there's still a ton of pent-up demand. Personal savings has increased by roughly $1.5 trillion from January 2020, the trough there, and disposable income has increased by 6%. And there's tons of jobs out there. So I think the consumer is going to be around for a while. The biggest stumbling block I see is the market multiple or what people are willing to pay for a dollar of earnings. The market right now is trading about 30 times trailing earnings. 
2023 times forward earnings. Hey, that's not cheap. About 40% of the S&P 500, the industry groups, when you break them down, 40% of them are trading in the top 10% of their historical valuations. In a way, I think the markets have borrowed returns from the future. And with valuations close to an all-time high, equity markets don't have much of a safety margin. So I think they're vulnerable to a correction. Who knows? It could be triggered by some hawkish rhetoric out of the Fed or uh, an upside in the inflation or employment numbers. You know, we could always get a surprise. Now, with that said, high valuations aren't necessarily an impediment to a bull market. Think of it more like a speed limit. I think that the returns from stocks are going to be more modest going forward than what we've seen here recently. Okay, let's move on. Have you heard about this? I'm going to change gears here a little bit. Have you heard about this? An Italian artist named Salvatore, and I'll probably get the last name wrong, Garua. He sold an invisible sculpture. That's right, an invisible sculpture for 15,000 euros. That's about $18,000. The Losano, it translates to I am. The sculpture, as the artist explains, exists, but just not in material form. In other words, it's not there, but you know. It's actually more like a vacuum, he calls it. And he went on to elaborate. The vacuum is nothing more than a space full of energy. And even if we emptied it and there's nothing left, according to the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, that nothing has weight. Therefore, it has energy that is condensed and transformed into particles that is into us, much like how we shape a god we've never seen. Got that? The sculpture is intended to be displayed in a five-by-foot square and must be displayed in a private space free from obstructions. But the good news is it doesn't need any special lighting or climate control. (laughs) He reiterated that even if you can't see it, it does exist. And it comes with a certificate of uh, authentication Uh, that he gave to the purchaser. So basically, he sold an invisible sculpture for $18,000. I think the big brain move here would be to do a limited run of copies, you know, like 250 of these things and sell them for a thousand euro a piece. I think that's just good common sense. Sounds like some of the spec deals I've seen here lately. Whoever bought this sculpture I'm hoping they paid for it with their visa. And I say that because, well, I like visa and visa just gave an update on their operating metrics and they were better than what I had expected, especially when it came to the cross-border transactions, which are back to about 85% of what they were in 2019. I thought they'd be more like 80%, but hey, you know, we'll take the higher number. And I've talked about visa before, but I wanted to come back to it and give you my thoughts on why I like the business as a whole. First, there are significant barriers to entry here, meaning it's pretty hard for you to start your own credit card company, right? Visa is the world's largest payment processing company, and they provide processing services for 
around 30 million merchants around the world. And if everyone opened their wallets, go ahead, open your wallet, and we start counting, we're going to find that there are roughly 3.5 billion, 3.5 billion Visa branded cards out there. And the total annual purchase volume for them is $8.6 trillion. $8.6 trillion. Second, we are and we have been seeing this secular shift towards card payments. Over the past several years, car, uh, car payments have gained market share at the expense of cash and checks. I don't, I don't know about you, but I don't write too many checks anymore. And you would expect this to continue, right? U.S. market share for car payments has gone down or has gone from 32% back in 2001 to well over 50% now, and it continues to grow and grow and grow. Meanwhile, the cash and check market share has continued to decline. It's already declined pretty significantly. The third reason why I like Visa in international markets. International markets provide both diversification and growth opportunities for Visa. About 45% of Visa's total revenue is generated in the U.S. And I expect this market, that 45%, I expect it to grow somewhere in the mid to high single digits over the next several years. And that's duly, uh, due largely to the continued shift away from cash and checks to plastic. Now, the remaining 55% of their revenue is driven by international markets, which include Asia Pacific, Canada, Latin America, Africa, Europe, Middle East. I think these markets in aggregate can generate double-digit growth over the next several years. And that's, again, driven by consumer spending and this shift to cards. So in the U.S., I think Visa is growing high single digits. Overseas, I think you're looking at double-digit growth because of all these trends. With the penetration opportunities in these international markets, which are relatively immature when you compare them to the U.S., I think Visa's international exposure provides them with opportunities to further diversify their revenue base. And the last one I'll mention is the leverage opportunities here. And by that, I don't mean taking on debt. What I mean is that Visa's processing costs are highly fixed, right? They have fixed expenses. So every additional transaction you put on that, well, you get very high incremental margins off of it. We're talking about 85% 85% plus type margins, right? So you're leveraging your system. So as long as they appropriately manage their two largest variable expense items, that's personnel and then the advertising, marketing, and promotion costs, if they manage that appropriately, good things I think will happen here. And you also have long-term international travel growth that provides benefit too. These Cross-border transaction fees are a large component of Visa's revenue, and even more so for MasterCard, but talking about Visa today. Visa's revenue stream, well, that cross-border transaction makes up about 25% of their gross revenue. And again, it's driven by international travel. And 
international growth, it declined back in 2008, 2009, when the markets went haywire and the economy, you know, we had the problem, but they accelerated back to about 10% plus growth in the recent year. And I expect a solid, uh, that they get a solid uh, long-term growth in international travel um, going forward. Now, this isn't a cheap stock. And frankly, MasterCard and Visa, they, they never get really cheap. Um, and that's just because they're high quality companies. And sometimes you have to pay up for it. If Visa were to pull back to around $220 a share, that's where I think I'd be a buyer. At that point, it would be valued like it usually is. Still expensive from a PE perspective, but it's valued like it usually is. But I think the growth profile is greater than what it usually is also. So you're paying a normal type of valuation for higher growth than you normally expect. Okay, we've run out of time for this week. I'll be back in a couple of weeks. And until then, remember, it's just as important to protect your assets as it is to grow them. I'm Eric Whiteman, and this has been Poppins Investor. show now it's time for the really good stuff so listen up it's the disclosures the things i talk about during the show well they're just my opinion and are not necessarily those of the xml financial group i typically own and trade the securities i'm discussing both personally and for my clients but not all of them likewise employees of xml and our affiliate broker dealer may be trading and providing advice regarding the securities I mentioned to their clients as well. Don't construe this as personalized advice or a solicitation to buy or sell a security. No, you should consult your own financial advisor to see if it's appropriate for you. It's also not a substitute for tax or legal advice. I suggest you get someone who's qualified in those areas so you can get the advice you deserve. When you're talking about asset allocation, diversification, rebalancing, they don't guarantee better results and they don't eliminate the risk of losses. In investing, there are no guarantees. Just because you use these strategies doesn't mean you'll outperform someone or something who doesn't. I like to make projections and other forward-looking statements, which are just that, opinions, and are not actual results and are only valid as of the date of this recording. Things change constantly. XML Financial LLC is an independent registered investment advisor.